Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Uh, We're very fortunate today to have joining us Callie Rush, a biologist with Ducks Unlimited out of the Great Lakes and Atlantic region. And Callie is going to be speaking with us about uh, elevated Great Lakes water levels that were experienced this year. And we're going to talk a little bit about the potential implications of that and help folks uh, develop an understanding of what that might mean short term and long term. So, Callie, thanks for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. How long have you been with Ducks Unlimited? I started at the end of April 2019, so I've just hit five months. Are you from the Midwest? I am. I'm actually from Michigan, so I have the opportunity to come back to my home state. I'm actually only about just under an hour from my parents and where I grew up. So the state of Michigan means a lot to me. Uh, And it's really cool to come back and be able to do great conservation work from where I'm from. Uh, Callie, tell us a little bit about uh, maybe even describing a a mental image of these uh, of the wetlands that are most common throughout the Great Lakes system. Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that. Um, So to begin to orient everybody, the Great Lakes region uh, is going to consist of Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Pennsylvania, and New York, just in the states. And then we also have um, provinces along the the northern shores of Lake Superior and Lake Huron, and also along Lake Ontario and Lake Erie. So it's really binational uh, waters that we're talking about. And to understand what these coastal wetlands are, I'm going to take us back in time a little bit to describe how our system uh, was formed here in the Great Lakes region. So historically, uh, this part of the United States was covered in glaciers. And about 10,000 years ago, those glaciers started receding out of the Great Lakes area, which eventually formed what are now what's now the Great Lakes Basin and the Great Lakes themselves. So when the glaciers receded, they left behind what's called drumlins and moraines. And so drumlins are big hills or ridges. And then moraines are going to be like gravel hills of deposits from those glaciers moving and receding north. So after those glaciers receded, it left Michigan and much of the Great Lakes region with depressions uh, throughout the area. And in these lowlands is what, where water would fill up and create these, these wetlands. So when we talk about coastal wetlands along the shore of uh, the Great Lakes, we're looking for these areas that have uh, some slope to them and there's a gradual decline in between water and land. And this doesn't happen everywhere along the coastline. But Over the entire Great Lakes, we have about 11,000 miles of shoreline. And these coastal wetlands are really found in the southern parts of the Great Lakes Basin. So in the northern part, it's very rocky, uh, steep cliffs, and there's not much room for a wetland to form. But in these more southern areas where there's lowlands, these coastal wetlands 
are going to be emergent vegetation. So if people are familiar with grasses and sedges and rushes and cattails, it's going to be right at that juxtaposition of the land and the water along our coastlines. You know, I, I spent a little bit of time in, in Ohio in an earlier uh, time of my career. And so I'm familiar with some of the great, some of the wetlands there around Lake Erie in uh, northern Ohio, maybe even into uh, Michigan and, and southern Ontario. Where uh, are there, are there particular lakes? Which of the particular uh, Great Lakes uh, are wetlands most, uh, these coastal wetlands most abundant, most dense? Is there, can you, can you point to that? Yeah, so that's kind of a difficult question to say where the most are. I would say that uh, most of our wetlands are going to be along Lake Erie, Lake Ontario. There's also a lot of wetlands in the Lake Michigan and Lake Huron. Um, that combination of the lakes, especially when you get down into Saginaw Bay. So if you're looking at Michigan in the mitten and in between your uh, index finger and the thumb, is called the Saginaw Bay, and there are a lot of coastal wetland systems within that area of Lake Huron. So these are these wetlands are found all along the shoreline, and rather than think about it by lake, it really just depends on what that part of the shoreline looks like. For example, a wetland isn't going to be able to form in an area that's always disturbed or if there's a hardened shoreline, such as seawalls, uh, or if it's just rocky cliffs. But if there's water that is sort of protected behind a barrier where it can uh, settle out and it doesn't have as much wave action, that's when sediment will start to deposit and coastal wetlands will begin to form. Okay. Okay. Very good. It's interesting. I I enjoyed my time up there in the Great Lakes region. It was certainly a different system. And um, the fluctuation of the water levels is something that that, uh, was certainly talked about quite often. And I never really fully appreciated all of that. And I was looking at an article not too long ago where I think it might have even been on the DU website or the DU magazine where the concern at that time was low water levels in the Great Lakes. And so earlier this year, earlier in 2019, we began to see and you guys experience record high water levels. And so naturally, these fluctuating water levels within the Great Lakes systems is to be expected. But... Uh, describe a little bit about what happened this year uh, with, with with respect to the high water levels. Was it a single year event, or does it take multiple years for these uh, for, for these cycles to um, to to go to, through completion? Yeah, so I'll start there with describing the water fluctuations and their typical duration. So it's normal for the Great Lakes water levels to rise and fall. Uh, among years, decades, centuries. Uh, And so that is a normal process. It might be relatively high for a few years and then relatively low for a few years, and it's naturally going to fluctuate. And that's what wetlands require to uh, establish themselves, is that fluctuation of water so that the plants can grow. What's different about this year is uh, really goes back maybe to 2012 or 2013 when the the lake levels were extremely low and everybody was very worried there's we have we're missing water their water is very low which can impact you know a multitude of other things however 
what we're seeing is a rapid change in the in how frequently this water is fluctuating. So in the past or historically, it may be every 10 years or every 12 years. But in the past six or seven years, it's happened very rapidly, uh, which is a, a very big concern because it's hard to predict the future when there's so many rapid changes and we can't know if it's going to be high or if it's going to be low. And so what contributed to that this year, of course, was our uh, a lot of precipitation this spring, but there was also a change in uh, evaporation. And so there's a lot of very smart people looking into uh, exactly what drives the water level fluctuation. And it's not as simple as pinning it down to just the precipitation, but there's a lot of different factors in there that led to the Great Lakes water levels beating records this year. Interesting. And so the evapotranspiration that you referenced, that that is, uh, I mean, my thinking is that, you know, for evapotranspiration to have an effect on rising water levels, we're talking about a decline, a decrease in evapotranspiration levels, right? Yeah. So what happened uh, here is that we were getting more precipitation and then the evaporation went down. And so if you're having more precipitation, more water entering that system and less water leaving through evaporation, then the water is going to climb. Yeah, and the evapotranspiration would be a function of cloud cover, right? The, the lack of uh, increasing cloud cover, lack of, of sunlight uh, fueling that, that evaporation, right? Yes. So there's, okay. a, there's a lot of different functions going on there. Um, and it, it's very difficult to to predict this evaporation or the precipitation because our weather systems react much differently when they're over the lakes, over the Great Lakes, than they are over land. And so it takes different sort of weather monitoring systems that we don't necessarily have in place out in the middle of the lake to accurately uh, calculate precipitation or calculate the evapotranspiration or evaporation. Okay. With that as the background, uh, let's talk about where we are now. I have a friend who has a cabin on Lake St. Clair, and he kept us uh, he kept us up to date on the uh, lake levels as they were getting close to the, the bottom floor of his cabin. He actually had water covering his yard this summer, uh, and you know, we were joking about how he was going to be able to catch fish out of his backyard before very long, and it got pretty close to that. But the, <laughs> the last we checked in with him, I think the water levels had began to recede. So where are water levels now on the Great Lakes? So water levels are still high. They have gone down a little bit, um, but overall they are above the average. So every single Great Lake is above their 100-year average by about 80 centimeters um, in all of them except for Lake Superior, which is just about 35 centimeters above average. And um, at, at this point, are there any expectations or any predictions that folks can make with confidence on what lake levels uh, might be? might do from here? You know, we don't know. It's traditionally the the levels would be decreasing in the fall. And so hopefully they can follow that same trajectory and start to decline. Um, but you really never know with this system and when things are changing, you know, nothing would be surprising at this point, but it is predicted that for the fall, typically water will decline. But the water levels. yeah, and 
in terms of water levels next year. You just have to wait and see what the precipitation, snowfall, uh, those types of events will uh, will bring to that uh, to those watersheds, right? Exactly. Be the first to know when ducks are on the move. Sign up for DU's waterfowl migration email alerts and receive ongoing in-depth updates on the latest habitat conditions, weather changes, and hunting reports for your flyway. Visit ducks.org slash migration alerts. So let's talk now about uh, the, an article that you wrote uh, the, referencing the sustained high water levels or the, the high water levels within the Great Lakes and uh, you spoke a little bit in this article uh, that I think we'll probably be able to link to this podcast somehow uh, about the potential implications of high water levels to coastal wetlands. And, of course, let's also talk about implications for ducks and folks that are familiar with that area know that the Great Lakes region is important not only for uh, breeding waterfowl, but also for waterfowl during the non-breeding season. So there's a whole range of topics I'm sure that we could discuss here and potential implications. But from a general perspective, uh, what's the biggest concern with high lake levels as it would affect uh, wetlands important to waterfowl? Yeah, so referring to that article, so this I co-wrote with Chris Sebastian, our communications in the Great Lakes Atlantic Regional Office. And we were really interested in looking at not only the effects on the habitat themselves, but what sort of the repercussion and the down the line effects would be. And so for this year, we're looking at high water levels and how that can affect uh, people, the habitat and waterfowl. And so as far as habitat goes, when that water level rises, uh, it will drown out some of the uh, emergent vegetation. So as it gets deeper, the vegetation will die that required the shallower waters. And so the wetland naturally would start to recede uh, back. However, with the great the water level so high, if there is anything behind those wetlands that they don't have uh, the ability to just keep pushing back, then we're going to be losing net wetlands. And so what that means is that there'll be less habitat on the landscape. And these coastal wetlands are very critical for migrating uh, birds. Breeding populations of birds will be affected. So some of the mallards and other birds that are nesting on these coastal landscapes, uh, they have a lot of other options to move further inward. And breeding pairs like smaller wetlands anyways. So they want to be on, they want to be able to bond on these small ponds rather than these larger coastal wetland complexes. But again, back to these migrating habit, the migrating habitat is a lot of waterfowl as they're moving north or south require stopover sites. So they need a place to rest and they need a place to eat. And these coastal wetlands often serve as those stopover sites for waterfowl. And I, Callie, sorry to interrupt you, but I'm guessing given the, the high water levels that have been experienced over the past few years, you've probably already seen some shifts in those coastal, uh, in those coastal marsh vegetation communities, right? Yes, we have. So we have uh, lost those emergent marshes uh, into more open water habitat. So as that water has risen, it has kind of killed off the, the emergent vegetation and with nowhere else for it to uh, start to form, 
then it's just wide open and we're losing. We have seen a loss of that habitat. Yeah. And just to be clear, when you say with the loss of areas or lack of areas for those wetlands, for new wetlands to form, you're really talking about an inland migration. That's, uh, that's the way that I've, I've, I've spoken about it most often uh, during my time on the Gulf Coast is you, naturally, as you mentioned, these wetlands historically would just migrate inland as water levels increased. And But the hardened structures, as you referenced, prevent that from happening, right? Correct. And, and, so, and, and so one of the things that, that happens based on my, uh, my, my remembrance of things in, in Ohio is it creates this situation if water levels are sustained for a period of time, then you, it's the, the, the once emergent vegetation is, has converted to the open water. And there is a, in some cases, a desire to construct um, impoundments in those areas, right? And that creates a bit of a tension because, um, because it's creating these artificial structures, but in many, in many respects, or in some cases, um, that becomes the only way to ensure the management of, of very productive wetlands. Is, is that, do you st still see some of that occurring? Yes, yes. So we do still manage these large uh, wetland complexes with impound like impoundments, uh, especially in these high developed areas that we want to ensure that what we're trying to do inside the marsh isn't affecting private land on the outside. So like you mentioned, your friend in Sa Lake St. Clair, uh, his cabin was probably low enough that the water uh, rose so high and it tried to move back along the shoreline, but eventually it hit his house and it couldn't move any further. Yeah. That's when we have this flooding happened. So for these impounded wetlands, it's helpful to protect that. And it, it gives us a way to manage these coastal wetlands. And in that case, we can also have these marsh habitats, whether the Great Lakes are high or low, because we are uh, purposefully managing the wetlands by creating by having the impounded structure surrounding that. And, and I imagine that there's when you make those decisions about whether or where to uh, to move forward with an impounded wetland or creating a wetland of that nature, uh, you want to you want to achieve the right balance. We don't want to harden the entire coastline, right? We want to we want to achieve an appropriate balance between ensuring those managed habitats while also providing some of those where, where they exist, where it's possible, making sure that we retain those areas where wetlands can migrate inland and, and back uh, naturally. Uh, is that correct? Correct, yes. Any expectations? Uh, I think it's probably very, probably difficult for, for you to make any predictions about what, uh, what these changes will or what these high water levels will mean on any given year, but uh, from a from a waterfowl use standpoint, or, or folks, whether they be hunters or other any, anyone else that uh, that that enjoys uh, observing the waterfowl resource, are there any uh, any things that they would need to be aware of, or anything that they might expect to change their experience as a field this year? Yeah. So in regards to that, like like you said, it's hard um, to give any certainty here. But if these if water levels remain high, there's going to be um, the birds will be using the landscape in a different way that they have in the past. So you may not be able to go to your favorite spot anymore and have, you know, birds coming in on, on the coast. Uh, but, you know, it could still work out for you. So that really just 
depends on where you're at. And it's hard to say with any certainty what somebody would see at any given point along the Great Lakes. So the important message is the landscape is not static. It's always changing. The birds are going to exploit that that changing landscape the best way that they can, right? Precisely. Uh, These landscapes are very dynamic. And from year to year, the amount of acres of coastal wetlands always changes because of that natural fluctuation in water. Uh, Callie, I think that probably uh, I think that probably sums up the uh, most of the points that we wanted to touch on today. I think that's some uh, interesting information on a topic that most people probably don't hear much about. Uh, Obviously, the people in the Great Lakes region are are acutely aware of the fluctuating water levels. And I hope we've today tried to paint a picture of uh, helping people understand the implications of those water levels. And and as water levels decline, uh, the next time they go through that declining cycle, I think we can probably expect that that vegetation, the emergent vegetation, hopefully to reemerge in those shallower areas. Uh, and, uh, and, and yeah, the cycle will continue. And in the meantime, we and you guys in the Great Lakes region will continue to do the things that, uh, that, that, that are best given those situations. So we thank you for that. And we thank you for joining us on the, on the podcast today. And we look forward to catching up with you sometime in the future. Yeah, thanks, Mike. I had a really nice time uh, talking about Great Lakes cycles. And thanks for pointing out that, you know, someday they will go down again. And it's uh, that natural fluctuation. It's going to keep going. Uh, We just really need to keep an eye out in the future to be more acutely aware of how things are changing and what the future outlook is going to be. Thanks, Callie. Yep. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks.